outfit too. This is terrific. Well, being a cowboy, it's what we got to do, you know. Yep. Well, Mr. Moody, welcome, welcome to the Edge broadcast here. We're going to be talking about life after life, and uh, tell us a little bit how you got even to, to look into uh, uh, life after life. Well, I got to say, right now I'm 77, but um, when I was 18 years old, I was uh, living in Macon, Georgia, and I had been. Uh, studying astronomy since I was seven years old and my dad was not a religious he was my dad had, but he was a World War II surgeon if you know professional military plus surgeon you put that personality together well I surmised later that probably from what he went through in World War II as, as a medic in the Pacific Theater it must have sort of turned him off on religion so anyway he was just he was just had nothing to do with the religion when I was a kid. So I grew up, my interest was philosophy. I never thought about anything related to religion or, and, and the idea of an afterlife, I thought that was, I didn't realize anybody took that seriously. But anyway, there I was 18 at the University of Virginia and, um, I decided to take a philosophy course my first semester because, um, I had been interested in philosophy in high school. So, wow, I just found my life's calling there. I, we've read Plato's Republic and just a few. It, what this book is about, really, it culminates in what we today call a near-death experience. Mm -hmm. Right? It's like the, there's a lot in there, but that's, that's really the big high point of it. Mm -hmm. And so to make a long story short, I just got interested in this ancient Greek phenomenon, but um, not realizing it was anything to do with the modern world. But in 1965, I uh, had the honor and privilege and great life pleasure of uh, hearing about the story of Dr. George Ritchie, who at that time was a professor of psychiatry there at the University of Virginia and uh, I heard that his um, his um, that he had had such an experience when he was uh, 20 years old at Camp Berkeley, Texas and I heard Dr. Ritchie talk and I knew you know what, what he the thing he happened that happened to him it was beyond me I'll tell you that but what I was just blown away with well, was what a wonderful guy he was. To the to this day, he was the greatest guy I ever knew. And anyway, so that's you know that's how I came across this. I went on. I got a PhD in philosophy. I heard a lot of these from my colleagues and my students, and uh, as I talked about it to the civic clubs around, you know, heard it from the movers and shakers in this town, you know, come <laughs> up afterward, you know, I mean, that's how those, uh, those civic clubs were back then. If you remember, it was all male province and the lions and the, um, uh, all rural towns, all those. And so, uh, when I go around to these little meetings, I you know almost every time these guys would, uh, Dr. Moody, I never told anybody this, but so that's how I got started. And then uh, 
wrote this book when I was in medical school and uh, then went on became a ultimately I did forensic psychiatry which is I'm still a little nervous from that one <laughs> I mean I'm sorry but <laughs> you know it's like it doesn't sink in with you when you're doing it because it's relentless mm. right but then you can do the years pass and you think oh my god and that was a pretty grim um, things that I was dealing with on a daily basis. So, you know, I do, I notice I close my, shut my lock, my doors at night, for example. But that's how this all got, that got started was uh, just, you know, by chance reading this in Plato's Republic. Plato's Republic. All right. Also joining us in the live chat was uh, uh, Joey Splats, Jim Shook, Blenda, Brenda Clifford, and Chris Holm, all joining us in the live chat. If you have a question for Dr. Moody, put your question in the live chat as well. Well, Dr. Moody, now you're a m mature individual. Uh, ha have you found yourself more and more considering the appointed time in your life? Well, you know, I, when I was 18, another one of the great books of Plato I read that same semester was called The Phaedo, which is about the process of dying and all and in it he said philosophy is a rehearsal for dying and I was at 18 years old I thought wow I see what he's talking about now at age 77 I look back and I see well that seems very unusual that an 18 year old would have had that response but that was my response and so I have you know I've spent pretty much my life studying about this so I um yeah you know I'm I'm realizing it here I am in the the home stretch and um <laughs> I gotta say that uh how old are you let me ask you that uh I just I just tipped a little bit over 60 60 well it's, I you have some really good years coming because this 70s thing is just the, it's great. It's, um, what I've noticed is, contrary to the, you know, the reputation, I find that my cognitive process is sharper than it's ever been. Mm -hmm. We moved down here to Sarasota in September. Okay, it's now July. And in that time, just because I put the books up on the shelf that I've read since I've just the, the sorting arrangement, I realized since I've moved down here, I've read 51 books, and all of them are academic books. And I remember, you probably too, back in the 20s, remember reading a book was, it was an <laughs> effort. In <laughs> but, well, you know, I mean, and when you're in your 20s. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. If you think about it, reading a book in college or something, I mean, it's an effort. Mm -hmm. But now here I am, 77, and it's just like zap, zap, zap. And what I find is that it's like, there's so much in there already that it's sort of, whatever you pick, put in now just sort of fits in. So I'm very excited about this time of life. And I'm just, uh, I, uh, my, I pray every morning and every evening, you know, like God, guide me gently through to a painless, peaceful, pleasant death, God. Oh. 
you know, on your schedule. Right. right. I definitely wouldn't be on his schedule. That's, that's for that going sure on that one there. Hey, I'll tell you what, uh, Dr. Moody, we've got a few questions coming in already. So here, here right. we go. Um, Smoke C from the live chat says, Doctor, is the death experience and the path to the afterlife similar for everyone? Well, you know, I've talked to thousands and thousands of people since uh, who've had this experience since 1965 was the first I heard it from a living person and thousands and thousands and there is in all those thousands there's definitely patterns and that is that um, there's about 15 or so common things and one person may see you know talk about three or four or five of them ten of them or sometimes all of them and they, the cases where they talk about all these different details are usually the ones that went on so long that you can't imagine they would have lived through it. Like I had a good friend I knew well for 20 years, who, and her doctor told me that he, she was dead, he said, for 40 minutes. And how does that happen? I don't know. But um, in these cases, what... The, the, gen, the, the sort of some of the common things that people say is that um, I heard the doctor say, oh my God, he's dead, we've lost him, or words to that effect, but they say that from their point of view, I've heard again and again people say that, uh, some words to the effect that I've never been so alive as when I heard that doctor say I was dead. <laughs> wow. And, uh, and, uh, People say it's like you might imagine like it's a diminishment of your consciousness or like a going to sleep. But people say, no, it's the opposite. It's an expanding of your consciousness, more like a waking up. And far from feeling like, you know, in the morning when you're coming out of a dream, you have that feeling of coming back to reality. That's what people say this is like, except that this is the dream that we're in now. And they say that, it's like your consciousness floats up to sort of a higher kind of level of reality. And um, that, um, that people say you can see your own physical body down below. And um, you can even understand what the doctors and nurses and others mm -hmm. present are saying. Although you they say it's not like you hear the voice. It's that you become aware of their thoughts and what they're, what's going on in their minds. And people say at some point they realize, oh, you know, it's something to do with death. They say no matter how bright and articulate they are, how many languages they speak, everybody says, I just can't describe it to you. They say there is, there are no earthly words that we can use to paint a picture of what this is like. Mm -hmm. But in terms of the way they can describe it, they say it's like, it's very similar accounts. They say you go through a passageway of some sort. Some sort. They may relate it to a tunnel, um, and that you come out on the other side of this tunnel into this incredibly brilliant and warm and comforting light. And they say that it's everything is sort of permeated with love and light, and that in that state that they often say that relatives or friends of theirs who have died are there 
you, they say it's not like you see a physical body, but you you recognize who they are and uh, the memories and so on. And, and, and people say that um, no matter how old they were when they died, an old, old person or a very young, they say the person you see there in that light is your relative is kind of in the prime of life, that people don't really have a an age, as you and I might interpret it. Mm -hmm. And uh, after a while, they say everything you've ever, everything else kind of disappears. And people say that time stands still. And suddenly they're surrounded by this panoramic hologram, which consists, they say, of every single thing they've ever done in their lives. And they see it not just from the perspective they had when they did this action, but they say you also see the effect of the actions you took have on other people through you are empathically embedded in the consciousness of those mm -hmm. with whom you've interacted. So if you see yourself doing means something mean to somebody, I know many of y'all might have done something mean to somebody in your life. I myself, I've never done anything like that myself. So <laughs> Come on, I'm Doc. Not, I'm not. I'm not worried. No, I'm just kidding. I'm I'm hoping to recuse myself from my own life review. But, <laughs> but I think we all got some recusing but, to do. <laughs> but they say everything is done there, and this very often they say they relive this in the presence of a being of sheer light and compassion. Mm -hmm. Christians say Christ, you know, Jews say God, or who, whatever people say this or being of light and this being who knows everything about them and loves them and through this life review at some point people have to come back and uh, some say they have no idea how I got back I was there and then I was here or others say they were told you gotta go back it's not your time yet others say they were given the choice they chose to come back. So that's basically what people um, have told me over over decades and decades now. Mm -hmm. um, by the way, Doctor, we have on our website a poll that goes directly with this topic tonight, Life After Life. And mm -hmm. um, the poll, I don't know if you've seen our website, but it's a poll for you. Uh, so here we go. Uh, it says, do you believe in life after life? And so let's see if we got some results in so far. Uh, okay. All right. So in the polls, 78% say they absolutely believe in life after life. 7% uh, says, no, you're just hoping there's something there. Um, uh, nobody said you vaporized into nothing. Uh, one person said, or I don't know what, how, what is it? 7%. So I don't know who, how many that is. Uh, one, seven uh, percent says you go to another dimension and 7% says that for some it's going to be hell. So in all your conversations, uh, for one uh -huh. thing, it looks like by far the audience agrees with the existence or uh, the, the, the thing of life after life is in all your conversations. Has anybody told you about uh, any sort of hellish experience? Yes, and I will say that there are so few of them that, uh, number one, it's, it's easier to make an inference about a large number, right? Mm -hmm. But when you have only a very small number of instances, it's very hard to 
you know, give any sort of analysis. But yeah, a dozen or so times over the years, people. Um, and and what I find is that they are a lot more varied. Like the ones that are positive are more homogenous, where the ones that are um, negative tend to be kind of like hard to distinguish from a delirium, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just don't know how to make an inference. And the Gallup poll, when it studied this, had that same problem. They couldn't, they said they had such a small number of them were negative that I, they couldn't make much of an inference. But but I also want to go and say that it's mm-hmm. occurred to me, you know, that, and I bet you might agree that um, if I was lying there in the bed and I had just had a hellish experience, I might not want to tell my doctor about it, right? <laughs> and definitely, because your doctor would probably put you on some kind of medication. All right, uh, <laughs> all right let's get to another question. Doreen says, uh, Dr. Moody, does has anyone ever said they see Jesus on the other side? Yes, yes, yes. People say a religious figure. Some say Christ, uh, Jesus, and oh yes, yes, absolutely. And, and by the way, and by the way, and now this makes sense historically. But I, oddly enough, I've heard a number of people um, over the decades who were Muslims who had near-death experiences in which they saw Jesus too. But but that makes sense in that Jesus is a figure in the Islam just as he is in yeah. Christianity as yeah, well. I'd, I'd be careful on that one. I, I would think if I saw, if I, if I had that experience and I, and I saw Muhammad or somebody, I'd probably be in hell. Uh, but let me ask you something. You, you mentioned about seeing the life review and, uh, and, I, and I heard you in another program too as well saying that that the 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 presence and I'm going to use the word God uh, could be light I guess uh, for emanating from that is perfect love. There's no judgment coming out yeah. of that. Yeah. But how long uh. does that life review stay up there? I mean, does it like follow you around, or do you just have to see it once and you go about your business? There, that is something really interesting to me too, because to me it's one of the most fascinating aspects of the near-death experience, because there's a startling conclusion that comes from it, absolutely, quite apart from any idea of the afterlife. But if you think about it for a minute, what the life review shows for a certainty is that at least for many of us, life is a two-phase process, right? First, we lead it through forward as the actor or protagonist and then time stands still and there's a turnaround and we get to re-witness the same action from the point of view of the other characters mm-hmm. so to me that's a rather startling thing mm-hmm. and you I mean I think that you do see I mean there are some real puzzles involved with this mm-hmm. and one of them is that sometimes people can see in on it who are close to you. It's just, uh, you know, I've had a number of cases over, including one doctor who had no uh, connection with the patient before was called to the ER to resuscitate. They, they, they don't, they're not looking when I'm in the shower, are they? <laughs> well, you know something? I figure... Um, 
I am not, I've spent my whole life thinking about, you know, we're always being watched, you know, by God in a very interesting and benign way. And I've come to accept that at the end, for for at least some of us, you know, it's like you get to see this uh, this backwards review of it, which must be utterly fascinating. Mm-hmm. And um, so, uh, you know, I'm I'm grateful for the opportunity okay. if, when I when I get there. Okay. I, All right. For people in the live chat watching the show, if you've had any near death experiences, just write, write in a very simply yes or no, or a, a one sentence thing. What you, what you saw. All right. We have another question for you uh, from Amishcom. So doctor, have you ever seen, uh, or have you, have you ever met Howard storm? I did meet Howard storm many years ago. And I know that he had a very dramatic hellish experience, which, turned at the end into a which happens sometimes once that can start very negative can can turn around and become very um good in the end and i, I remember uh howard very well yeah it did. okay and then uh, another question coming from smoke says uh says doctor how many lives are we supposed to live and do we choose what the purpose of each life will be uh, or do we have some kind of do we have some kind of say in what kind of life? Now, this the way this is written, it appears they're suggesting that there we have multiple lives. What's your what's your view on that? Well, first of all, thank you for the question, and thank you so much for thinking that I might be able to answer it. But I immediately want to say that yeah, I gotta say, and again, thank you for the respect accorded me by the question. But I really. I have my own thoughts about it, which I'll share with you, but it's not anything that I would try to persuade anybody else of. But my, where I have come to on this came to me through my two little kids who are now grown, but as still my little kids, who were adopted at birth. Um, Carter is uh, Mexican-American by heritage, and Carolyn is a Native American Blackfeet Indian by heritage, my wonderful kids. And uh, so, and, and my wife and I don't talk about life after death at all, right? We don't take these kids to religious ceremonies, but both of them just out of nowhere related these things about where they were before and because we didn't grill them on it we just we just were silent and but because of that I think partly they have continued to sort of talk about this so personally I think my where I've come to it is um you know Ellie Wiesel who's a character some of us will know but uh, maybe the younger folks won't but he was a wonderful writer and he once said God made man because he loves stories and that's what I kind of think that I think what God is really interested in and it certainly seems to be from this life review people have that God is interested in your own personal life story mm-hmm. And which is astonishing to me, but I, I mean, I can see that how it's unfolded in my own life, for mm-hmm. example. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned and, that, uh, earlier, uh, uh, Dr. Moody, you mentioned uh, that 
uh, if you've been mean to people that you actually get to see the, you, you get to see the repercussions of, of that action. That's right. But, That's right. And, and then you said you want to recuse yourself. So I'm just wondering, is there anything in this life before you get over and, and, and that scene gets impregnated in your life story on the other side, is there any way to delete that story offsetting by apologizing to God or the person or doing a good act? Can you, can you delete that scene or is it permanent no matter what you do? You know, I knew a really great young man who it just, that was why he chose to come back to sort of correct some of the mean things he had done to friend to friends and so on so yeah there there is that attitude with some and then other people come back saying that you know i mean it just transforms their lives you know whatever they were chasing before they say hard as it is that that we try to try to pursue learning to love others which is but but you know even this wonderful george ritchie i mean like i said the greatest guy I ever knew he one time he told me he said Raymond, this this experience makes your humanity even more of a burden in a way. Mm. And what he meant by that, George was very kind-hearted. He would not use words like I'm going to use, right? But my rendition of that is, let's face it, it's very hard to get through the average day without wanting to choke at least one person. <laughs> Isn't that right? Right, you got it. you were, you wow. admit it. Well, yeah. you've been reading my mail, man. You, okay, so and, and and that that doesn't go away. See, mm-hmm. you just that you you're still that person, and you're still, but that it does it commits people to a totally different life. I, I've seen it, you know, with many people I knew for a long period of time that they really do put prayer and meditation, you know, and they really try to get it better. Okay, well, let me let me throw this one out too. That's a great, great point you made there. Anybody in live chat, I'm gonna test your theory. This t- Today or this week, did anybody in live chat just say yes or no? Did you want to choke somebody? Uh, now, to our earlier question to the live chat, I asked uh, uh, if anybody had been to the other side, and we have a few yeses in there. And then um, it looks like somebody said they saw the Grim Reaper. But then uh, we have this question or this answer to that question. Uh, Half Q says, uh, I died twice. I was hunted by human dogs. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I, I don't. I, that is not a familiar kind of story to me, but that really sounds just utterly fascinating. I mean, I'm, uh, you know, but I'm sorry I can't comment with not knowing the context and all, but uh, that sounds pretty drastic. I give the, I give the live chatters, the viewers in the live chat, um, I gave them a, a easier question. I said, uh, or smack them rather say, did, did they have any feelings of choking somebody? I so I made it simpler and easier. Said, do you have any desire to smack somebody today oh, or this yeah. week? Yeah. Now, now we have yeah. a no, and we have um, an uh, yeah, we have a yes, uh, we have a slap count, um, <laughs> we, we have lots of laugh choke somebody, um, and here's a person says they beat themselves up. So I, how about that? Maybe yeah. people, some people want to choke they self. That's right, and uh, I guess I'm 
I may have caught on that one. I've, I've been through self-destructive periods in my own life too. So, I mean, you know, that seems to be built into us. But what I'm getting at is that people say that, uh, you know, even after you have this grand experience, it's losing your fear of death and, and uh, realizing the importance of love. It's really very difficult to put that into practice in everyday reality. Well, and we put th we put that into some practice last week. We had a guest on the program uh -huh. that uh, many would uh, take issue with their lifestyle, and mm -hmm. uh, we didn't make any judgments on this program according to this person and their lifestyle choice. In fact, we decided we would just love them on the air and respect them. Uh, although, still, it's a fine line, Doctor Moody, when you when you respect someone and treat them with care and tenderness and love and not move your belief system that you believe that your intrinsic that is that your your foundational principles i guess i could say i didn't compromise those by doing so and it's a kind of a fine line to do that and it maybe takes some practice for us all of us to take some practice to to not be judgmental, but at the same time holding your financial foundational principles. Because for me, I'm mean, I'm sure you believe that your foundational principles and ethics are, are worthy, and and that it makes for a better life. I'm sure by now you have you've got armor that's got dents all through it, and it's made you who you are. And what you believe now, you must believe that you have wisdom to share. And that's why you're on the program tonight. You do obviously have wisdom to share. Well, I have not reached that point of realizing that I have wisdom yet, but I sure do know that I just... See, I think to me it's all your relationship with God. I turned over, you know. I mean, I just... Uh, I am completely confident that... Um, I mean, since I... I mean, I pray in the morning, I pray in the evening, I do it several times during the day. I mean, it's just a constant conversation, and I am completely confident that uh, God is going to uh, correct me, you know, or like if I, I, you know, would God have let me know in one way or another if I get off course? And I just, from my relationship with God, I think that to me, God is a lot more forgiving and uh, allows a lot more latitude than um than a lot of the human doctrine does on it. See, is is the way I look at it. Mm -hmm. And I'm just trusting to God to whack me down if I, uh, if I go too far wrong. But okay. so far, I think he uh, is treating me with a good sense of humor. Well, that that's good. Now, Gary Kidwell says, uh, Dr. Moody. Uh, I beat myself up. Can I be forgiven? But let me expand on that thought. And because this question always comes up, can somebody who commits suicide be forgiven or are they committing murder? Uh, well, you know, see, my take on this comes from being a psychiatrist who dealt a lot with violence, uh, specifically, um, a lot of psychotic killers and mass murderers and occasional serial killers you talk, in, a maximum, in a maximum security unit. Wow. So, um, 
when you say murderer or or suicide, I from a long experience, this is what I think. Okay. Number one, I and I think you might agree if you survey all the adults that you know very deeply so that you know them inside and out you probably agree with them with me that a number of them are committing suicide I mean whether drinking themselves to death or smoking themselves to death or playing with their cell phones zooming down the highway or uh, just or lying around on the sofa or like me consuming cholesterol so, so the idea that God is going to zap somebody who takes 30 minutes by pills whereas somebody who takes 30 years by cigarettes gets a pass Ooh, wow I, nice very nice yeah well what I mean is that God you know it's God looks at this in a bigger picture than we do. I mean, what self-destruction. And so, um, so I, I just think that um, what I hear from people who, at the hundreds, I guess, of people, certainly dozens and dozens and dozens of people who've had their near-death experience as a result of suicide attempts say they would never again attempt it. Not because they felt like they were going to go to some terrible hell if they had gone through to completion, but rather from reflection on what this would have done to their loved ones left behind, primarily, and that they would have seen that in their life review and so on. And so, and, uh, so people say, yeah, I never tried again after that. So, so and, okay, go ahead. And also, a number of people say this, use the same metaphor almost, say, you know, it's like a, a it, or a com simile, I guess, like comparing it to go walking out of the movie before the movie, so that you have a regret and afterward that you wonder, you left things hanging and mm -hmm. you wonder how it would have worked out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So don't do it. <laughs> okay, well, I guess that'd been good advice to to Brian uh, to Jeff Jeffrey Epstein. He he didn't take that advice. Um, so, and a lot of people know, agree with that that interesting point you made about that. Is there a difference between taking a pill or killing yourselves thirty years of bad habits? You know, um, let me. So you say as a psychiatrist, you talk to killers. Well, yeah, um, back in you or maybe a little young to remember, but in 1966, we had a couple of really fascinating homicides in the United States, the Whitman killings of 17 persons from the Texas Tower and the, the, the Richard Speck killings. So that summer, it was all over the New York Times for weeks, and so I was just really interested. I was a graduate student in philosophy at the time, but then I just kept up an infinite and uh, an interest in homicide. So then, when I went to medical school, I started following the what well, the, then the forensic pathologists would go out to the crime scenes. I guess they didn't have the criminalists that they do now. It was just the doctor could go to real 
unusual. So I got to do a lot of that. I was just in my two of my closest relatives in law enforcement from the time I was a kid. So um, I just got interested in it. And I, I worked in a maximum security unit for the criminally insane with people who had done these. <laughs> I don't know why. Um, I, I don't know why that makes me, makes me laugh. Criminally insane. I always think about the government. I don't know. But, um, <laughs> all right. So you, you talk to these killers. Um, is there, is it that their, their mind snaps your psychiatrist? I mean, what, what is it their youth up, upbringing? Uh, they just hate God. I mean, what, what causes people to do that? Well, you know, each one was a puzzle, right? But some of the kinds of things that go on in cases we had were be delusions, right? A delusion is a fixed false belief that somebody has that they can't be persuaded out of by, uh, by uh, rational means. And um, a lot of these people had delusions or heard voices, uh, which, uh, you know, the voices telling them to kill people and so on. And so, and these were, I mean, just very, very bizarre killings, right? Which is why the government has decided more or less that they don't want these people in prison, right? They need a kind of special handling area for, um, for and so that's, well, and, and that's really what we did. We, we had a, a, about 120 patients at any one time in the male unit. And it was just an absolutely fascinating experience. We all agreed. We felt grateful to God in a way to, it's like giving us the experience of working almost in another dimension, mm -hmm. which it was. Well, I mean, now, that, that is an interesting question, because that leads me into my next question anyway, and that is, do you believe that we're in a holo holographic universe? Is everything around us real, Doctor? Well, you know, I've, I've definitely uh, wondered about that since I was a kid, and I suspect you probably did too, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I remember very well just waking up to consciousness when I was looking through a telescope one night and thinking, oh my God, how can this be that here I am, me, in the midst of all this vast universe? And um, so, and, and I... And I'm sure you had this intuition too. It seemed to me that while I can be sure I'm consciousness, I'm conscious, there's no doubt about that. But the next step to go from recurrent patterns in my consciousness to the existence of an external physical world, I've never been able to go that far. And I'm not sure that you have either, either if you know what I mean. I mean, it's like, yeah. really, because once you get to think about, I mean, I give up, right? Because mm -hmm. any, any set of patterns you see, you can explain it as some, a projection of a, that perhaps these are movies that we're in. That's what a lot of old people tell me. I worked for a year as a geriatric psychiatrist working with very distinguished old people who were there mostly for uh, loneliness or, you know, situational mm -hmm. stress or whatever. Mm -hmm. But, the, you know, just very brilliant and reflective people. And constantly during that year, I heard, Raymond, the older I get, the more it seems to me when I look back at my life that it's been a 
movie or a script or a play. Or, that's just a very common perception of reflective old people. Mm -hmm. And um, so, um, I, I and that I think is about as good of a definition of personal identity as I can come up with. Mm -hmm. That what is your identity as a person except your life story? Uh, have you been in uh, in uh, in hospice areas before? Oh yes, sir. Yes, sir. I when I was in medical school, even I mean that I was already known for studying this. So, and I was older than the other students because I'd mm -hmm. been through a PhD in philosophy first. So, mm -hmm. I was the one usually that they would, to my great good fortune that the attendings would usually, you know, I, mm -hmm. I had a lot of terminal ill patients. Yeah. Did, did, did any of those patients tell you they saw relatives in their room? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And, and I remember one lady, I guess, in her early 80s, and I, was, I walked in the room. She was kind of talking to her relatives who asked, you know, and I was, I just sat down beside the bed. I didn't want to interrupt the conversation. Right, that'd been rude. Yeah, and she said, she said, no, Dr. Manny, and she looked at me and she smiled. She said, oh, no, Dr. Manny, I know what you're thinking. You think this old woman here is hallucinating. And I said, no, no, ma'am, no, ma'am, no, ma'am. I said, I, I, I know about so, and we had a, so yeah. you know, the, I, the, I, I, we see this all the time. Absolutely. In the medical community, you must be aware that a large percentage of them say that this this idea of this seeing this tunnel, this light, is merely chemical reactions of your brain, and then yeah. it's, it's bringing fragments of memories here and there, and so it's all chemically induced, uh, uh, you know, just bodily produced, and there's nothing there. Do you agree with that? Well, I would wonder about the percentage. Obviously, the physicians who are friends of mine and all are very receptive to this, right? So, I mean, I think I've been invited to all sorts of medical societies where, you know, a lot of people are very receptive to this. But you're right, there is a subculture also that's very hostile to it. Mm -hmm. And it's nothing new, Daniel. I mean, this is this same debate goes back to Plato versus Democritus. Mm -hmm. Like 2,300 years ago, Plato said, yeah, this indicates an afterlife. Democritus, who had figured out that that tabletop you're on there is made up of tiny little bits that are too small to see. He said, no, these things, it's, it's, it's just, um, he said, there's no such thing as a moment of death. He said, what these things are is the, the residual biological activity in the body even after the person seems dead and this now we call it oxygen deprivation to the brain well what i don't want to know is why it is that identically that same experience with all of the elements including getting out of your body or seeing a light seeing the relatives of the dead come in going part way out of your body toward this light even empathically co-living the dying life review of a person occurs not to people who are on the verge of death but to bystanders at the death of somebody else that you know that somebody standing there at the bed 
bedside as grandma dies mm -hmm. may say that yes yeah, grandma died i lifted out of my body with her and i went up toward this light and i mm -hmm. saw you know aunt martha there mm -hmm. so you know i mean and also i got to think that there's a certain amount of fear daniel on this whole thing because uh you know, some people are terrified that they might have to say, I don't know. Well, saying I don't know just trips easily off my tongue, really, because I, mm -hmm. I realized when I was seven years old and looked through a telescope that I was never going to know much of anything. But that the fun of life is gathering up what little you can, right? Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. so, um, so, Dr. Moody, uh, over the thousands of near-death experiences you've examined, have, have you? Does that actually give you more hope for when you meet your Maker that there's something over there rather than you disappear? Has it buoyed your expectation of something good that's going to happen, or were you always that way? Uh, well, it was a long process for me. I knew this wasn't oxygen deprivation to the brain, but I just didn't know what it was. Um, and it was a long process for me. Um, but where I've come to is in the last few years is that I just give up. I mean, I can't think of what else it might be. One thing is I have maybe, you know, a dozen medical doctor friends, all told, who've had near-death experiences, right, who, who assure me that, you know, this was reality. Now, I ask myself, would I, I am an inveterate walker, okay, I have to, okay. Decades. I have to walk every day. Not a virtue, not hoping I'm going to live longer. I got to do it. It's an addiction. All okay, right. Okay. Now, now, if heaven forbid something were to happen to my foot, I say, would I go with my injured foot to see Dr. Anthony Chicoria, an orthopedic surgeon who's a professor of, well, Orth was a professor of orthopedic surgery at NYU and is also a PhD in physiology and who in 1996 was struck in the neck by lightning and had a cardiac arrest and had a near-death experience now Tony tells me yeah absolutely this was not just real this is more real than real as we understand it and from a dozen of my medical friends uh, whose medical judgment I trust. It's like it gets to you after a while. I give up. I just give up. I think there is. But I wouldn't try to persuade anybody else of that. People have got to make up their own minds. Mm -hmm. um, a, a viewer says, I lived inside of my coma. Is that normal? Well, number one, Daniel, I just, I tell you the truth, I did find out as a psychiatrist what normal is. So are you ready to hear it? Normal is somebody you don't know very well. <laughs> okay. okay. That's right. Gotcha. So normal, I don't know. And so what was the, what was the specific thing that, then the question about uh, uh, that he's uh, this person said they lived inside their coma yes 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 when when um, 
I was in medical school. We had a lady, as this went on for months, the lady who was comatose, right? And every day we'd go in and see her in the rounds. And most of the days when we went in there, there was the Bible group in there reading the Bible to her. Nice. And so we would go through and all. And so then, you know, in our little rounds after we talk about it, you know, it's like, isn't it nice that those people come to read the Bible to her every day? And but you know, so we said, you know, our attitude was, you know, that's really nice of them to do that. But, you know, as we know from our superior medical point of view, you know, she's, you know, she can't respond to that. She's comatose. So, you know, months go by. Then we go in one morning and she's sitting up in bed, uh, back from the coma. And so one of the first things she said, you know, I think I would have gone crazy if those people hadn't come in to read the Bible to me every day. So I'm just, my own personal practice with comatose patients has always been to be very ginger about it. Mm -hmm. I mean, I just assume that they, I assume that they are conscious. Because uh, when when, um, when somebody has a near death experience, uh, you mentioned that they see others, and and I've heard I've heard that more than once. People say that the 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 uh, age of the people seems to be around thirty. Around thirty, that's right. And the um, prime of life, which is good good news for all of us. Um, that's right. Because I got a lot of living left to do, and I got to live again <laughs> when I'm up there, but. And then they, you said that they see the sort of the image of others. Do they see angels, uh, beings, animals, flowers, anything like that? I can't remember anybody seeing angels in the sense of wings and such. But definitely people who say that you see beings who are kind of enlightened, that they are they're shining, you know, light. So, you know, if you want to, but in terms of wings and such, no, I can't remember anything specifically no, like nobody that. Fly, nobody and, flying around, nothing like that. And, and then, and then to the animal or uh, flowers type of thing, anything. I, like very occasionally animals, but flowers, yes. I am uh, a very wonderful uh, student of mine who was a. Worked for an eminent politician, actually, was just one of the sweetest people I knew. And she had a near death experience when she was 11. And she, I met her when she was in her 50s, but she um, painted this picture of me what, from what she saw at her and during her near death experience. And these unearthly beautiful flowers Ooh. okay now that was in about 1989 or so that she gave me that painting flash forward to about 1992 and the Japanese TV network had come to talk about near-death experiences because the very famous Japanese news journalist over there was really fascinated by the subject of near-death experiences and there was interest so he came over and I had this painting and I'm not making this story up by the way 
I had this painting on the wall mm -hmm. and just right before he went out on my porch. So the Japanese guy and I were walking around and so he said he had studied, you know, he had interviewed a lot of Japanese people. And he said, but Dr. Moody, he said, one thing I found in the Japanese reports is that a lot of them, people see flowers. <laughs> and he said, but I don't see that in the American reports. And right at that moment, I swear to God, <laughs> we walked right to that point where the picture on the wall was. And I said, well, as a matter of fact, this. <laughs> and right. so, yeah, and so, um, and I've heard flowers too. Yeah, this is nice and apparently that's uh, a, an element that the Japanese are fond of as well. Mm -hmm. Did you say in the first hour that philosophy is preparation for dying? Yeah, a rehearsal for dying. Re uh, that's rehearsal, right. that's what I want. Philosophy yeah. is rehearsal. And you're, you're yeah. absolutely right. Uh, going even back to the uh, the Book of the Dead, the Egyptians, I mean, the fascination with death and the afterlife goes back in human history as long as there's any recorded history and now of course it today does. science is trying to tell us to forget all that that everyone was just crazy all the billions of people that believe that were just crazy but science is going to somehow tell you the truth that you're just going to be dead and you're just going to go to you're just going to you know plant a tree on your body because that's all you're going to be able to help anybody after after all but i i, I don't think science can give us the answers uh like they think they can well you know there's different kinds of scientists and i know some that are really great and modest at their uh you know awareness of what they're able to do but uh, i'm a person who loves science and also realizes that there's a great difference between science and scientism mm. i love science i've mm. been I'm an avid astronomy guy since I was seven years old. But what scientism is, is a sort of social belief in America now, it's very prevalent, that science is the only rational means of answering a question. And I used to teach epistemology, which is theory of knowledge and philosophy. And I'd say the first couple of days, I'd say to the kids, you know, what do you think knowledge is? Well, just believe me and trust me, American kids and that sort of, oh, science is knowledge, right? So, well, what do you mean by that? I'd finally get them to say, scientific method is the only rational means of establishing knowledge. So I'd write that up on the board. Is that what you think? Yeah. So then I'd write a, I'd draw a, rectangle around it and I point to it and I say well how do you know that now if they if they say well scientific method is the only rational means of establishing knowledge and I know that by scientific method that's called reasoning in a circle right it just assumes what you set out to prove on the other hand if you say scientific method is the only rational means of establishing knowledge and I know that by history or philosophy or literary theory or the law see that's a self-contradiction mm -hmm. because you appeal to some other so this whole attitude that you're describing there are people who think science is going to solve everything 
Well, that's a kind of delusion. Mm -hmm. And it's, uh, you know, people are very fearful who live in that kind of uh, uh, restricted worldview. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, I'll give you an example of science. uh, It used to be they said that hydrogen uh, could be kept in um, uh, stainless steel drums and and that's what science says and, and agree you, you actually mentioned about I think you said something about a, a wood table but then they found that the molecules are smaller than the metal itself and will actually evaporate through there but science would tell you in the beginning that this is a sealed unit and nothing can this is absolutely a solid drum nothing can go through it well that's not true but in the beginning science will tell you that it can until it can't so that's why I always question science because uh, they give you a story and everybody tells you the same story but later they find out more facts and they change the story and act like they never said what they said at the beginning and then you're supposed to believe in what they're saying today so I got I got a little skepticism there I think I think I'm getting more or hearing more scientism than I'm seeing sci- hearing scientific fact yeah yeah well I mean I think the guys who really just enjoy doing it just doing it, doing it for its own sake they you know it's that's how it is it's process right something that we think strongly now we may have to you know we may see something different in a few years so i think there's that kind of flexibility for the good ones i mean you know there's ideologues in any subject i'm sure but but i think the people who are just really driven by curiosity as you seem to be quite a bit and i know i am Mm -hmm. it's that's a different thing Okay, we have this question from Put Your Way First. So, Doctor, uh, people who are in a vegetative state, are Mm -hmm. their spirit soul or consciousness away from their body? Sometimes people who've been in that state tell me so. I remember a young man in Virginia back in the 70s telling me that in his that throughout his period of being comatose after a horrible motorcycle accident, which I just grates on my nerves to think about, but he he um, he said that during this long period of time he was comatose, that he said he kept coming in and out of his body. He said, yeah, it was like for a lot of the time he was out of his body. And I mean, that's just one story, but I remember... I remember him because I remember the the beautiful description. But I, I hear it's something I hear a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a, it's it's supposedly a scientific fact that when you die, your body weighs twenty three grams less. Is that true? I I know about that study, but I don't put any credence into it at all. Mm-hmm. And and I would think in the first place that the aspect of us, if assuming there's an aspect of us that survives after death, I don't think is of a material nature is the way I think about it. Uh, 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 Dr. Moody, when you go to the great beyond, um, w- what question has been burning in your mind through these years What's the first question that you want to ask whoever it is over there that's managing that that thing? What what question do you want to ask first? You know, I decided a long time ago, um, Daniel, thinking about this, and um, 
from the, all the thousands of people I talk to, I don't think that I am capable of formulating a question that would be appropriate under that circumstance because no matter how, and I suspect you've talked to some of these folks too, you know, I mean, it's just they say that this is just too much to put into words that there's no way they can give us an adequate description of it I heard, based on the language we understand. So, so I heard somebody, somebody said, never ask God why me? Because you know what God will say? Why not you? I guess. Yeah, he'll say, do you want a list? Yeah. That's <laughs> right. saying, God, why me? Why me? And God say, do you want a list? I mean, <laughs> I think, I think, you know what I'm saying? I'm thinking, I'm thinking we all have kind of a list going there. So that's a question I'm not asking because, yeah. And, and that's the thing about, about the, 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 the life review is that I am sure from what you're describing and others have said similar things that you're going to see things that you forgot about, or maybe that your mind has that's really right. been protecting you. It, your mind let you forget it because it's too that's horrible. Right. What, what you did was so horrible that you don't want to remember and you couldn't remember and go on with life. But then all of a sudden you go, Oh, I can't believe I'm bringing that up here. This is heaven or, you know, the afterlife. I mean, that one, I mean, I mean, and I always, and I've asked yeah. other guests too, how many people are going to see what you did? But I, I do believe that somehow yeah. our, our, our minds give us a little self-protection and allows us to forget some of the things that we, we may be embarrassed about or shouldn't have never done. Well, I hope so. I mean, I hope that we can have a sort of editing session at some point. I mean, <laughs> An editor, I like that. You know, like some of the things clipped out. That would be a nice thought. <laughs> but then, you know what would happen? And I'll tell you this, is that as soon as you clipped it out, you'd say, oh, darn it, I should have left that in because then, it, you know, it's like, <laughs> who knows? I mean, you think of all the things that when you were a teenager happened to you, you think, Oh my God, this is just the end of the world. Now flash forward. You laugh at those same things. Mm -hmm. right? mm -hmm. uh, so you have written several books and I have one of them in our background. If, if somebody were to read these books, Dr. Moody, what would they come away with? Are, are they encouraging books or are they books designed to make you think? Or just information do what do what you will what, what do you what what are you trying to do with your book what would you like to see happen when somebody picks one up right well thanks for that question Daniel that's just a terrific question and um, all my life I have just been driven by curiosity and so I was just I was naturally fascinated by these near-death experiences and I I didn't really have in mind writing about them, except that uh, this is my book, Life After Life, except I, uh, I talked to a medical society about it, the subject, and a reporter was there. And based on her story about, and then a publisher called me, was how it happened. And, uh, but, I, but I love to write, and I gotta say, I just think that, I am so grateful to have my contact I do with my readers. I mean, I just, uh, it's something I really thank you God all the time about. I mean, you know, it's just, uh, 
a wonderful opportunity because I think that knowledge and information is here I am 77 I've spent my life seeking knowledge and I gotta say it's a good thing to seek <laughs> you know it's mm -hmm. really mm -hmm. it's really very satisfying life and I just love to impart knowledge I think that that um, that my dad I got that from my dad who was a surgeon but he he his idea was that if you are educated then you have a an absolute obligation he thought to be in public education like to he would always do lectures on surgical things to groups and such so mm -hmm. you know and I got that from him and I think it's knowledge is a wonderful thing this new book that I've done um, um, everybody knows I guess about life after life but the one that just came out a few months ago is I've been working on a long time it's called God is bigger than the Bible and um, what it is I've just it sort of came about from the pandemic because I've been working on it a long time and uh, the general idea is that I see a, I just met a lot of people over the years who really are looking for God but who can't get there through religion or through the Bible you know and who are intimidated I've known people it's like just like so intimidated by the Bible, for example, that they're, it, they stay away from God. And so what this book is all about is about what I've learned about God from my own personal experience of the presence of God, and also from talking with thousands of people who've been with God in the course of their near-death experiences. So these are personal reflections about God, and it's like my basic message is you don't need to be solemn or formal or scared that talking to God is like a relationship it's like if you get too much into wondering about well does he exist oh yes he exists because of this the design the the little amoebas that's all so beautifully designed I mean you know that's poppycock it's like a God it's, I, I was a professor of logic for a while and I could it'd take us about an hour but I could go through and I could explain to you what it means to say that something exists there's even a symbol for it and a way of expressing that concept of existence in a, the language of logic but when it comes to God I give up God is greater than existence itself. No, it's um, what I say is, if somebody asks me, Raymond, do you believe that God exists? I say, well, absolutely not, because number one, any belief that I limited Raymond Moody is going to be able to formulate about God would be bound to be off base. Plus that sentence, do you believe that God exists? The emphasis of that sentence is on the word exist. <clears throat> I say that God is great. When, when somebody asks if God exists, they're trying to put this human concept, existence, and make it a circle around God. <laughs> and that's just funny if you think about it. It's so 
-hmm. But anyway, so I say, you know, what I say is, I have a relationship with God. Mm -hmm. That's how it it comes across to me. Mm -hmm. And so, um, that's really what God is bigger than the Bible is all about. It's like my my relationship with God and the things I've learned about God through my relationship with God and through what people tell me when they've had their near-death experiences. Mm-hmm. Well, you'd be happy to know that what you said, I triggered a cooperating truth that I found in the Bible where Moses went up to the, the fiery bush mm-hmm. and asked God, who shall I say sent me? And he said, I am that I am, which is exactly what you said in another way by saying the word is exist as if that's, and I agree with you in that circle. But when you say I am that I am, that's well, that's so far. That's not, there's no circle can hold that. It's so far out there. And another thing you said about God is bigger than the Bible. The Bible itself says that God is bigger than the Bible because it says if the works of Jesus were written down, this world could not contain the works that he did, which means, of course, of course, Jesus says that I am God, I and the Father are one, which means he was in the very beginning of, of, of the creation. And we all know that, as you said, and I agree that God lives some way through us and, and or wants to see our story, but not, I mean, there's there's a connection there that somehow what you're doing, God may be experiencing in some way. And so it's that's and, right. And so it's very, very, very interesting. And by the way, in our live chat, uh, Smoke C says, uh, Doctor, uh, we want you to know how much we appreciate your wisdom and gentle mm. spirit. Thank you so much. That is so sweet of you to say. Thank you. Mm. Well, I got about what you were saying, Daniel. Yeah. You know, this uh, Christian monk from the 14th century, Meister Eckhart said, the eyes with which I see God are the same eyes with which God sees me. That's a pretty good one, I think. Wow. And you've been giving us some real nuggets here tonight. We got uh, philosophy as rehearsal for the afterlife and then um, the one about the taking the pill to commit suicide or slowly killing yourself right. under there. And then there's another one in there. And this is a, even yet another one. Remember in the first hour I said, you're going to be bringing wisdom and, and you, he said, well, I ain't got no wisdom, but yet doctor you have, but your mm-hmm. humility is, is also showing in that. And that that's a, another great trait. And I, I appreciate you doing that. So are you, uh, are you done with writing books? Or are you writing another one? Well, I am right. Yeah. I'm, I'm constantly writing. I just love doing it. And uh, my prayer every morning and evening is that, you know, God guide me in my work, lead and guide me in my work. And um, I pray that, you know, what I do, um, that I do helps people. You know, because, you know, it's uh, it may sound virtuous when you're in your 20s to say, well, the happiest life is, is to help others. And, then it sounds like an ideal at first, and then it then it becomes kind of an aspiration. But uh, I guarantee you, when you get 77, it's just a fact of experience, because uh, 
you know, the reality is <laughs> you're happiest when you're helping other people. That's just the, mm -hmm. the okay. fact. Okay, so life. reflecting on your life, we got some people watching the show that's 30, 40 maybe, and they're constantly worried about this, they're worried about that, uh, and they're all, maybe even complaining, complaining about the gas price, complaining about the vaccine, complaining about the schools, com complaining about the government. So in your mature state, what would you, what advice would you give people that are currently in a state where, I mean, we all have been there in, in the worry state and one worry kind of after another, as if it's a part of their being, what would you, rec what would you tell them? Well, I've been, then I've been there many years, many decades of worry, worry, worry. I know exactly what you're talking about. And one encouraging word is that it gets better just with time. It does, it does. And also in terms of an active stance, I guess it's a paradox to recommend the active stance of surrender, but that's what I've come to see from an old friend of mine said, you know, the most powerful prayer is surrender. So I say, you know, what I'd say is, and I'm not religious, by the way. Right. It's, um, See that? I'm not into religions. Like my wife and I lived in Alabama for quite a while, and we, we never took our kids to church because we used mm -hmm. to say, well, we're afraid of snakes, right? But that's just a little joke. Because <laughs> mm -hmm. right there in Indiana, y'all had this, the snake handlers. Mm -hmm. You're right. Yeah, around, we, got, we got some. Al Evansville, I know, because I got. Well, my, our best friends lives in El Evansville, so I know. So, um, but it's just, you know, it's a relationship with God is what it's all about. I mean, worry is, yes, I've got them too. <clears throat> what, uh, what you can eventually do, and maybe you can do this faster in your lives than I'm able to do it in mine, all because right. you're younger folks that I'm talking to here. Um just pray and uh, let it, you know, surrender, let it turn it over to God and uh, try to avoid the coming up with the solution and sending it up as a prayer request is my advice because <laughs> that gets you in big trouble world. Okay, okay, explain that again. Don't, don't pray what now? Yeah, I know it's what I used to do is I, I'd be in trouble and so I'd pray I'd come up with an out the outcome that I wanted to have. Okay. And I would pray pray to God to send that love. Mm -hmm. And very often I'd get it, but then I would immediately realize, Oh no, shouldn't shouldn't have asked for that. So what I finally learned to do is that you just say at the very beginning, open it up. You solve this. You know, I, I just, I just let this go to God. Right? It's the way it works out best in the long run in life, in my opinion. And I also understand about the worry and the drivenness. Goldie Hawn, I figure, must be a genius. Oh. <clears throat> I heard something she said years ago. I read about. She said she had seven years of psychoanalysis and she said 
what my psychoanalysis did to me was that it changed me from a driven person to a driving person. And that's exactly what I've experienced in my life. And I bet you have too in your life to a degree, That right? That, that it's like, and what was, all right, now get this. Before I was 31 years old, I had two doctoral degrees, a PhD in philosophy, plus three years of teaching philosophy in a university. Then I went to medical school and had my PhD and my MD before 31. And at that point, you know, Daniel, you will be able, you are old enough to be able to attest to all our listeners and the, what I am saying is that there was something terribly wrong with somebody who would have two doctoral degrees mm -hmm. by the age of 31. Isn't that true? Yeah. Yeah. And that was me. You know, my whole life with my nose in the book. So, um, and you know, so I am no stranger to worry and drivenness but but that's what happened to me just like Goldie Hawn said I just got to where now it's it doesn't feel like it's being shoved from behind anymore. it doesn't it the energy is coming from out front it's what I want to do I'm motivated to get my work done rather than having this guilt trip or whatever it was pushing me from behind you you got to do you got to accomplish you got to accomplish it's just like what you want to do mm -hmm. right. wow well i'll tell you what we're right at the end of the broadcast and i, I think a scripture that would kind of go with what we're talking about uh where paul said i know how to be abased i know how to abound everywhere in all things i'm instructed both to be full and to be hungry to to both abound and suffer need, but I can do all things through Christ. So, I mean, yeah. once we talk about worry, uh, maybe those things that we're worried about are, are things that are going to make us better people. And certainly if we only have one shot at this thing, we want to get it right. So if we got to go through a couple of things to take the sharp edge, edges off there, they'll take one of those clips out. That's like editing the, what we're going to see on the next side. Well, doc, Dr. Raymond Moody, I appreciate you coming on the edge broadcast. Any final thoughts? Well, just I want to appreciate, appreciate you so much for hosting this and appreciate all the folks tuned in tonight. So just thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Okay. And I didn't even have time to send out my Amway products. For it, <laughs> but I'm just, I'm just joking about that. Just joking about that. All right. Speaking of editing, we'll edit the first start of this program here because it'll it'll seem like we you just logged right on and everything went great. And that's the good thing about editing. So I'm going to ask great. I'm going to ask the good Lord if he could edit some things out. So Dr. Moody, can we have you on the show again sometime? Please, please. This was just more than just fun, isn't it? I mean, yeah. did you have fun too? With Absolutely. People in the live chat, you have fun tonight. Hang on for a second. We're going to find out. I just asked people in the live chat, did they have fun tonight? We're going to find out. Uh, Mishcom said, this was an amazing show, doctor. Thank you. Uh, Smoke C says, thank you, uh, Daniel and Jade and uh, that doctor. Let's see. Uh, Tony Louisiana said, great show. Um, the Our moderator, Jed, uh, Jay, says, great fun. We got a 10 by 10. Chris Holmes says, yes, very fun. How about this? Southern Boy says, Raymond is the man. Um, All right. 
and uh, and then we have another constant companion says yes I love the show so it looks like a lot of people had fun watching the oh, show tonight well just thank y'all so much this is just so much fun for me thank you okay alright doctor we'll have you back on the program great alright bye bye